You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. If you love trees, you probably want to share that love with others. In this episode, I chat with Greg Packman, who's a senior arborist in London that runs his own tree walks in and around London. You may remember him from episode 113, Intro to Tree Pests and Diseases. I wanted to know how someone can practically set up their own tree walks, each with a different theme, even if you only have a limited amount of trees to work with. Greg and I discuss where to find people to follow your walks, how to run a successful walk, and some of the biggest mistakes that he's made in the past that we can learn from. We've had this episode in the back burner for a few months, but finally got the go-ahead to release it. I hope you enjoy listening to this chat as much as I enjoyed having it. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hi, thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. So I guess when we're talking about creating a tree walk, what kind of a person would actually create a tree walk? (laughs) A tree enthusiast, basically. Um, (laughs) uh, For my perspective, at least, it was wanting to try and engage people with trees. I think one of the key takeaways I've learned is you don't have to be a tree expert or a tree professional to sort of run a tree walk. If anything, sometimes the more you know about trees, the less engaging and less accessible it can become. Some people kind of talk at their own level, which isn't the most readily accessible for the average member of the public. But anyone with an interest or enthusiasm for trees who's kind of got that desire within them to kind of either share their knowledge or promote trees in nature to other people. All sorts of people can run tree walks. Like I said, you don't have to be a tree expert, you don't have to work with trees. You don't even have to be that knowledgeable. The great thing with trees is that they do so much. They cover so many things that um, I've had people ask me to do like trees and climate change walks. I've had people ask me to do trees and subsidence walks, tree identification, folklore. Any interest that you have as an individual in trees, guaranteed there's going to be people out there who will find that interesting and want to learn more. And I guess when you're talking about these themes, and we'll get on to choosing a theme shortly, but you can have more than one walk at the same park, for example, because it's just looking at it through a different lens, right? Absolutely. Yeah. In England, one of the benefits that we have from our ancestors as such is that we have quite a lot of Victorian era, I was going to say planted parks, but uh, designed or constructed parks. So Mm. quite a few of the parks are very sort of either historic landscapes or particular significance to how they were designed and constructed because trees are so variable across the seasons two days ago i did a winter tree identification tour in one park and in that same park you know come october i'll be doing an autumn color one in sort of may june time i'll be doing trees in leaf identification and then you know you can just do a general introduction on what the trees in that particular park are or go into more specialist themes like ancient and veteran trees one of my absolute favorite walks i do is about the folklore and mythology so again it's one of the great things about trees is that they do so many different things they cover so many different aspects that you can have an infinite number of themes and events looking at the exact same trees if you wanted to so you said you you do some of the seasons and you said you do the folklore you also do an insect and invertebrate walk can you tell me about your invertebrate walk yeah so that, that's one that i really i say i, I really enjoy <laughs> i enjoy all my walks but um That's one of my particular (laughs) favourites. So trees are basically, each individual tree is basically just its own tower block of biodiversity. And they're just a whole ecosystem in itself for a range of invertebrates, mammals, fungi, etc. And uh, I don't know how, how it is around the rest of the world as such, but in Britain at the moment, there's a real 
eco-anxiety sort of thing about the declining mm. habitat and populations of invertebrates as well as all the uh, climate concerns as well so actually being able to talk about the role and the value of trees as habitat i think it's a really valuable topic and then people really seem to enjoy that area as well but i think when it comes to invertebrates i think the majority of people tend to think of either pollinators or the saprozylic insects so dead wood decayers detritivores as mm. they are but you've got all manner of things from the small i say small, small inverts are all, all quite small but the ones that live <laughs> on the leaves make their home in the leaves such as the ghouls ghoul wasps school mice you have the sap suckers um, and then even things like ladybirds living in the crevices of, of bark it's one of the great things about the way that i think i do that walk is is every single square inch of each individual tree has its own individual habitat and even the same part of a tree such as the trunk but at a different compass point so the invertebrate populations on the northern side of the tree could be quite different to the southern side based on sun exposure and the temperature i find that's a really great way of introducing not just trees as landscape features but the whole ecological food chain the basis of the ecosystem and then also you, you kind of can't talk about trees and invertebrates without talking about fungi as well so it, it's just a great way of covering all the ecological roles of of decay of how trees grow how they live and the habitats they provide and then also the kind of interlinked symbiosis between each such as um okay so one, one example you've got the tree it grows it produces wood you've got the fungi which can decay the wood and then you've got the invertebrates which live on the decay and then as for tree ages and the wood decays, the tree is then able to take advantage of its own decaying wood, produce new roots sometimes inside the tree to reabsorb its own decaying wood. And it's kind of just one example of how those three things, the tree, invertebrates and the fungi, are all kind of working in sync in a way. To, and it's actually creating more and better habitat. But, um, I, I do also try and cover the less nice aspects. Um, <laughs> with, with, I, mean, with the, it's, I think it's an important thing to cover because... We've got things like the Aprocessary moth in the UK, which it's an invertebrate, but it's an invasive one. And it's there's going to be potential problems with it outcompeting the native invertebrate populations, as well as the human risk issue. And then there's also the historic case of Dutch elm, which was population, almost an entire population of trees wiped out by a fungus, which was carried by an invertebrate, the elm bark beetle. No fault of the beetle, the fungus just piggybacked on the beetle, just sort of covering all the different aspects of how trees and invertebrates interlink and the not so good as, as well as the good parts. Yeah, I think it is important to also touch on those pests because, you know, people might think, oh, this is just in my garden. But no, actually, these things are happening in public parks and stuff as well. And a lot of the time, with a you know, few exceptions, such as the elm bark beetle, these diseases and pests are actually fine. They just exist within part of that system. You know, trees get well, they get infestations, they get over it most of the time. Sometimes one of them dies, but as long as most of the trees, you know, are thriving and, and you're keeping some of those old ones, she's all right. Yeah, and it's um, the pests and the invertebrates and the fungi that have all evolved in the same, same ecosystem. They can kind of self-regulate in a way. And and also, you know, if, if one tree does die from a particular pest in the woodland, it's um just creating more habitat <laughs> in a way so it's just further adding to that cycle totally yeah so look, looking at the, all the different themes of the tree walks when i first started doing them it was either trees of a certain location in a cemetery or a park or it might be of just general trees like here's a tree this is what a tree does sort of thing but um the more i've done the more creative i've tried to get so the 
useful things like winter tree, summer tree identification, autumn color. One of the parks I'd leave tree walks in has really, really nice ornamental areas with lots of flowering cherries and fruit trees and magnolias and stuff. So around about April, May time, uh, we do a flowering trees walk, which sometimes it works brilliantly, but other times it could be a week or two too early or too late to none of the flowers. It's a bit like trying to plan a trip to Japan for the cherry blossoms. Absolutely. I mean, last year, was it year before? No, 2021, I did a awesome colour tree walk too early where all the trees were still <laughs> green. So I was basically going around saying, this is a great tree. This is what it'll look like in a month's time, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is a bit, a bit of a nightmare. But um, And you can go very specialist in themes as well. So, you know, like we talked about trees and invertebrates. I also do one on ancient and veteran trees as well. If there's one thing that I've learned that the public love, it's learning more about old trees, especially. Fascinating topic. A real favourite of mine is actually looking at the cultural beliefs, so the folklore and the mythology and the histories of the trees. And really capturing that human interest and how trees have shaped human belief and civilization people find that fascinating as well one of the couple of the cemetery tree walks that i do so again this is a bit more london at london specific but we have quite a few victorian era cemeteries and the victorian as a victorian's culture as a society we're very big on symbolism and themes so a lot of the trees that you'll find planted in victorian cemeteries are linked to themes of sorrow and mourning and eternal right. life such as yeah um, evergreen trees being planted to symbolize eternal life uh, weeping trees like a weeping birch weeping beech, weeping lime they're planted to symbolize uh, the mourning uh, as in m-o-u-r morning sad mm. morning um what else have i done environmental walks trees and trees and invertebrates like we talked about uh, i've had requests to talk about trees and subsidence which i didn't want to do because it's basically in the uk at least looking at all the ways in which trees are have the odds stacked against them in subsidence cases yeah but these are these are people who have a specific area of interest and want to learn more mm. and it's a great way to, rather than like a chalk and talk presentation you can do an interactive tree walk and then i've kind of expanded it a bit with the folklore in mythology by looking at the practices of beliefs around death one that we try and tie into halloween but particularly in the olden world trees had so much belief and symbolism with afterlife and the practices of death and how people cope with death a lot of that centers around trees as well so when it comes to the themes of tree walks you, you can be as creative and as abstract as you want in fact be more creative because there's people who will be interested there'll be people who've never thought about that particular topic one of the organizations that i was previously involved in the urban tree festival yeah you know, we, we would open up events and ideas and suggestions and people would do tree yoga meditation uh, I, i've actually been on a creative writing walk where we go from tree to tree and the walk leader would encourage people to write a quick poem at each tree not something that I'm remotely good at, but I still find found the experience quite interesting. Trees and art. Again, there's there's a theme and a topic for everything to do with trees. And it's just, you know, be as creative and as abstract as you want. And there'll be people who are interested in it. Yeah, 100% agree. It's funny that you say there'll be people who are interested in that same topic because 
Uh, a compatriot of yours from the UK, John Parker from the Arbora Cultural Association, came on the show in episode 45 know, John, yeah. for a Trees in Mythology episode. And much like yourself, he's really into, yeah, like the stories that human beings wrap around these trees. And there were some similar things that came up with death and things like that. Probably some of the, the deeper parts of a human experience, I guess. Yeah, very much, because every ancient culture had a particular tree that was associated with their gods, yeah. such as the oak tree, well, Quercus roba in the UK, was very much linked to gods like Zeus and Thor and Jupiter. Obviously, they weren't the gods of the ancient Britons, but every culture had a particular tree that was associated with their main god, and it would become either a very spiritual place, or when the person died, they would burn the body on branches of that tree mm. as a way of to, to guide them into the afterlife. I don't know how it is where you are, but in London we have a very active... People who really... So th th there's a London month of the dead around October and Halloween, where it, it's it's not quite the Mexican day of the dead celebrations, but it's people who take a lot of interest in death and the afterlife and beliefs around that. They sort of go to cemeteries. It, it's a bit more bit more serious than Halloween, but not quite Mexican day of the dead stuff. Yeah, right. But they particularly find things surrounding death and beliefs around death very, very fascinating as well. Hmm. I didn't know about that. It was only um, because I was working in a cemetery and I saw a group of people dressed as vampires and like Victorian steampunk stuff in the cemetery. I was like, what on earth is going on? And uh, it turned out it was this big thing going on around London. So is that like a pagan or a Wiccan thing or is it a Christian thing or is it just a folklore thing or what's going on? I think on? it's more of just a folklore thing with aspects of pagan and, and Wicca going on. I haven't, I haven't looked into it as much as I should i usually find things like that quite interesting just to learn more yeah i'm interested in the stories that we wrap around natural things and stuff like that i'm very much interested in that sort of stuff too so now we've chosen our theme for our walk or maybe we even have multiple themes how do we create a route so the route and the theme kind of yeah they do kind of work hand in hand so again with the, just quickly going back to the theme you can be as creative as you want, really, with choosing a theme of the walk. It doesn't just have to be, these are the trees of this park, these are all woodland, these are, you know, an identification. You can go as as creative and as left field as you want to. I've, I've seen people do, like, uh, med meditation walks, tree dancing walks, all sorts. But um, and I suppose the first point with choosing the route is that you naturally kind of want the best trees that you can find, the best examples, either the tallest, the most visually attractive, or the most unusual, or depending on what the theme is, you might have to do a, a zigzagged or alternating route to find the trees that are quite relevant. So when I do my winter tree identification walk, I like to start with horse chestnut, Aeschylus typicastanum, depending on what the common name is in the world. And the reason why I like starting with that tree is because all the identification features that you need, such as the shape and the structure of the tree, the bark, the buds, the bud pattern being opposites, uh, the bud texture being quite big, brown, sticky buds. And then things like the leaf scar underneath each bud, they're all very big, very conspicuous, very easy to see. As a learning tree goes, I find horse chestnuts to be really, really brilliant. So I like to start with that particular tree. So naturally the route kind of follows from there. Depending on the size of where you are, people, on my events, it's, it's not like a half day or a day long workshop. It's like a two hour walk. So people kind of 
they're coming along for the specific theme, but they're also wanting to see a bit of a walk, a bit of the park, wanting to go for a bit of a walk and a wander. So stay, uh, stagger the trees, give a bit of distance between each tree so people can actually see uh, a bit more areas of the location that we're in. But um, one thing that I've sort of learned the hard way is not everybody is comfortable leaving the path or going through the long, long grass or the uneven terrain. Um, yeah, you know, I've had wheelchair users, people with prams coming on the walk. So accessibility is a really, really important part. I even myself fell over on one walk because I, I took us through a part of this part that had lots of rabbit holes. So I put my foot down the rabbit hole, which is a bit embarrassing. So yeah, again, you've got the, like the health and safety aspects to choose from or to, to consider. Find If you've got a good starting point and an ending point, um, keeping those in mind as well. But really it's I very much like to plan and prepare quite a lot in advance and I'd like to stick to my my themes. So if I'm doing a I don't know, a trees and folklore walk, I'm not as bothered about trees that are that don't have the don't have the history as such or the folklore. So like I said about the importance of having a horse chestnut on the winter tree identification walk, I'm not quite as bothered about that on the folklore. So I'll be, yeah, be going around trying to find different different trees, keeping it, yeah, showing people something that they haven't seen before, keeping it interesting. And because I do quite a few different walks in the same park, so I get quite a few people coming back to do multiple walks and different walks. So I like to try and change the route so people aren't just going going across the same area to the same trees time and time again. So what about choosing like a good starting and finishing point you kind of talked about sometimes with your identification walks you'll like to start with the was it the chestnut sorry yeah very very much very much the horse chestnut yeah that's not really a tree i'm familiar with um too much so how important is it to start at a good starting point and a good finishing point like i guess that's all part of the story as well yeah it's um well from a logistics point it's it's crucial i um last summer i led a walk in this really historic area of the city of London called the in the temple district the inner temple gardens which is uh, one of the legal areas of London like the historic legal inns so because I work I do a lot of work in that location with the trees I knew exactly where everything was but I didn't do a very good job of explaining it on the joining info of where people had to start to, to join and it's a bit of a maze if you don't know that area so <laughs> While we were supposed to be starting the walk, I was basically running around searching for people, shouting at strangers, are you coming on a tree walk? Just trying to find people because I had, I just didn't do a very good job of letting people know where it was. So, yeah, from a logistics perspective, one thing you really have to bear in mind is that you as the walk leader know where the starting point is, but people coming for the first time won't have much of an idea. So keeping it as straightforward as possible is really really key i mean if you're doing it in london in the uk then you're never that far from a london underground station so quite often some of the walks that i do you know it might be i'll sort of state say that oh yeah we're starting just by the entrance near lancaster gate station or marble arch mm. or something like that and then it's quite easy for people to find or um one of my winter true identification walks in hyde park we start by the education center so you know, on the joining information, actually uh, either doing a link to a map or an image or describing how to get there is really key because as straightforward as you think you're making it, there will be someone who might misinterpret it or head to a different spot. Um, but also with the 
from a tree perspective, again, you're going to have to balance that of the ease of where to find it with where's good for the walk. Where where are you going to? What what route are you taking? Because uh, again, going back to another recent walk, it's a really wonderful park in South London called Brockwell Park, which is got an amazing sort of five, six hundred year old oak tree in the middle of the park. We, we had to kind of start near the main entrance, but that was a 15 minute walk from the entrance to where the, the next good trees were. You know, I can sort of do a good job of walking backwards, talking to people about trees to keep keep the walk going. But again, it's just kind of not leaving too many gaps between trees and pre-planning in advance where a good starting point and also, I keep just keeping it relevant to the walk itself. If you plan it well in advance, then you might have all your trees in very close proximity. But if you're not as knowledgeable of the area, which I've done a few times, you end up with quite long, long distance walks. Mm. Or people can't find it, which is very, very awkward and embarrassing. So, and also, I guess, logistically, you know, if people don't have cars parked near the exit or if there's no public transport or, you know, I know in Australia, there aren't always public transport options around at some of our walks so i guess planning the exit is also just as important as planning that meeting point initially yeah absolutely i mean the majority of the walks that i do are kind of circular walks so we we finish where we start off but i have done a few others where it's like a point to point walk from one end of location mm. to the other so letting people know how to leave as well as how to join is really key and i suppose i was, I was looking at it a bit from a london perspective where yeah, you're never that far from a bus stop or a London Underground, or you can just get an Uber or a taxi. Mm. But yeah, again, if you're doing it in a more rural location, like a woodland or a forest, then yes, yeah, always useful to sort of start at the main entrance, but really sort of planning and letting people know in advance where things like like the car parks are, the main entrance, um, toilets as well. Not every park has public toilets. Not every location has accessible toilets. So keeping those things in mind are really quite crucial as well. So is social media the best place to notify people about these walks? Like, how do you get the word out there? How do you build a following of people who would be interested in the first place? So I'm a bit lazy in how I do mine, in that I don't organise my own walks. I get other people to do it for me. (laughs) So I'll sort of run them through other organisations. But they tend to have their own email lists. So they'll kind of send off notifications via email. They'll put event notifications up on their websites. And yeah, that they will do some promotion on social media. So I'll probably just put something up on Twitter advertising what that I'm doing. For all the flack and criticism that social media, particularly Twitter, gets, it's still a really, really, really useful tool because yeah. it's it's so kind of up to the minute and you can really reach a wide group of people. And there's a lot of people out there, particularly in the nature community, who really want to sort of share and promote what other people are doing so before you know it you put up a post you tagged a few people and then you got lots and lots of retweets and then thousands and thousands of people are seeing the advert for your event so if you're looking to target new groups and new people unless you're specifically reaching out to different groups then social media is a really 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 good tool for promotion and advertising of those sort of events unless you're just not very good at making it i mean content creation is an art isn't it yeah, it is. I have seen a few, I can't remember word for word, but I, I have seen a few um, social media posts where it literally says, tree event this Saturday, 9am. And <laughs> there's just not much beyond oh, that. No. Yeah, you, you need to get your yeah. advertising flair, uh, creative thinking sorted a bit to try and draw people in. But I think that's kind of where the theme comes in as well. Um, there's a lot of people out yeah. there who want to learn about trees, but aren't as confident or they might not have thought about a particular aspect of trees like they might not have thought about the importance of invertebrates and trees or they might want to learn more about 
climate change and trees and if you're running a walk that they could be interested in yeah be be creative and enticing and drawing people in so if there was someone looking to start their own tree walk and they were like hang on hang on hang on go back to the bit about the company that gets the word out there for you is that a pr company like what do people google to find that so i've never gone through a pr company um the majority of the groups i work with either existing organizations like um the rural parks or the london national park city i might get a few requests in i've had groups from like the woodland trust and others botanic institutes getting organizations get in touch but um i don't know what you have in australia but in the uk we have a type of group called a friends group so the majority of parks and woodlands and nature reserves have dedicated volunteer groups that are typically mm. the friends of such and such park they're usually like charitable organizations run by very dedicated volunteers who are committed to that location who actively want to promote their area and the work that they do so i've got a whole group of these friends groups i work with across well across london but elsewhere in the country and they'll typically promote it but obviously they're kind of advertising it to their own members to their own subscribers but when i've had people attend on walks that they've I've, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I just woke up this morning and Googled things to do in London this weekend and somehow my tree walks came up. But um, if you're particularly savvy with you know, search engine optimization and, and things like that, you can sort of tweak it so your keywords as such on your adverts or your web pages or what have you are sort of linked to keywords like events this weekend or things to do or events in london or obviously from my perspective events in london or you could put you know tree walks uk um so those are the ways i found found people um find it is quite often just searching online for either wanting to learn more about trees or they'll type in trees of london trees of melbourne trees of new york or what have you and um again this is kind of like the dark arts of online instant advertising that i don't particularly understand but somehow <laughs> my events seem to pop up for these people i've had them picked up and advertised in places i never would have thought like that we've got this free magazine in london called timeout right. which uh have advertised a series of my walks and i had no idea how that happened and no idea that they had until someone told me but <laughs> again it's the wonders of the internet is that you can find almost anything and things have a way of snowballing and picking up picking up um, momentum yeah, build it and they will come, as they say. Yeah. So what do we need to keep in mind around group sizes? So, you know, like what do we expect? Like what do we do if we get too many people, for example, or what is too many people? So when I'm planning a walk, my ideal numbers are typically between 20 and 30, depending on the location and the type of walk. So the walk... But I'm doing at the moment, because we're still in January, so I'm doing winter tree identification. It's a bit different in the sense of, on my other walks, I can just sort of stand by a tree, point at it and talk, and people sort of stand back and look at the tree. Whereas when I'm doing the winter tree identification, I actively encourage everyone to, to get up close and look at individual parts of the tree, look at the twigs and the buds and etc. So naturally it works better with fewer people because you need to actively get them um, close up to the tree. Mm. Um, 
as much as anything, it's what you're comfortable in doing. I mean, I've, I've been leading these walks for five or six years, so I'm quite happy talking in front of a group of 50 people as such. Not that I've done that many walks with that many people on, but um, a, a huge part of it is just what you as an individual feel comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had walks with a lot of people, sort of 30, 40, 50. The group gets a bit difficult to manage. Uh, people take a long time to walk between location. It's a bit less personal. But then I've had other events where <laughs> like maybe four or five people have turned up because it wasn't advertised so well. Uh, it can be a bit of a blow to the ego when that, that little... <laughs> So little people turn up, but actually those those have been some of the nicest ones that I've done because it's like a very intimate, personal walk where you're kind of almost like walking around as a small group of friends rather than walk leader wow. and walk attendee. But uh, again, this is a, for me quite a crucial point is what can the location actually facilitate? So one of my walks that I do is in a, a Victorian cemetery in West London called Brompton Cemetery which is a really, really wonderful, fantastic place. But the way in which the cemetery was designed is it's basically like a long rectangle with lots and lots of very long, narrow pathways, which is visually lovely. But when you're taking a group of 30 people, it's almost like 30 people walking single file around much of it. So Mm -hmm. getting people to stand around to see the tree can be challenging. And then... (sighs) Because obviously I'm at the front leading the walk. I'm losing time because I'm waiting for people to catch up. Yeah, and then you're sort of standing there waiting to talk. Yeah, and then the people at the front are kind of wanting you to talk, but then you don't really want to talk because you don't want the people at the back to miss out. And it's it's yeah. not the fault of any of the participants. It's just how that location can facilitate that many people. So, but you know, so when I do my winter tree identification, I'd, I'd like to try and cap it about 20, 25 if I'm doing Brompton. Yeah. I like to try and cap it at a similar number. If I'm doing any of my walks in like Hyde Park or Kenston Gardens, which are much bigger, more open areas, then you know, 30 to 40 I'm happy with. If I'm doing okay, so sorry, so a bit more context. All the walks I talked about so far are public, non-specialist walks, but I do a series or I organize with other walk leaders more professional level events as well, particularly on ancient trees in London. So ones that I've organized through the Ancient Tree Forum in the UK, those are for people actively working in the tree industry, where actually having more people can be better because at each tree, you're wanting to sort of stimulate that debate and conversation through different people's uh, experiences with managing trees. So actually sometimes having a much larger group can can itself be a good thing because then you have lots of different debating Mm. points as well Mm. um i'd say the most important thing is work with the group that you're most comfortable with because a lot of people don't like the idea of public speaking so doing anything more than 10 people just isn't going to work for them but Mm. um what you're comfortable with what the location can handle in terms of practical sense and then the more intricacies of the walk such as if you're doing tree identification you need people to be able to go close up to that tree to look at the distinguishing features but if you're doing something a bit less focused like that where people can just stand back and look at the tree from a distance then you you can have more people on that walk what about introductions like when people get there how do you make sure that everyone knows each other so that everyone has a good time and not everyone's standing around with their arms folded trying to you know hang out in the corner because they don't know anyone so 
typically when I do my walks, because I'm doing them largely on behalf of other organizations, there's usually a representative from that group who will do the first introduction, which is kind of getting people to come in close. They do an introduction to that organization, you know, be it the friends group, a charity or the education departments of an organization. So they'll do a quick intro on that. And then they kind of introduce me and then I sort of talk a bit, introduce myself. When it comes to the introductions, one thing that I get really, I I do get a bit annoyed about is when the other person, through the best of intentions, admittedly, does like a 10 minute introduction. So I do (laughs) kind of think that everyone's here to see me. (laughs) Well, no, they're not here to see me. They're here to see the trees. But um, I do find going into too much detail in introductions is a bit of a pain because it's taking time away from the walk, taking time away from the trees. People don't really want to hear it as much. So Mm. I personally like to keep introductions as brief as I can, cover the basic information. I quite like to just manage expectations as well. So again, depending on the size of the location, I'll tell people that, you know, we're going to cover the whole park or the whole woodland today. Or I might say, we're only going to cover a very small area because it's a very big area, a bit very big location, and we're looking at a very mm. specific thing. You know, use it as a good plug to advertise future walks in, in other locations. I also try and what's the word I'm looking for? Just make it as accessible as I can because again, I like to sort of manage people's expectations. So I try and particularly on the trail identification tours, some people can pick it up really easily, and other people struggle. So I usually start that by just saying that of the golden rules that I have on my walks, the number one is not to compare your progress against other people's in the groups because we all learn in different ways. We all learn at different rates. I mean, for as much as I like to think I know at the moment, it took me a very long time to learn some quite basic things. And, you know, particularly the identification, it can seem like a really intimidating thing to learn. Mm. But again, it's mostly just practice and repetition and structured learning. Really, I think with a lot of true identification, the people with the better, better identification mm. skills have just been doing it longer and spent more time practicing and have good memories. But again, it's sort of, yeah, just asking people not to, or letting people know that there's no expectations on my part. There's no sort of judgment for knowing or not knowing. Sorry, yeah, just get that out there up front that, you know, there's no expectation from you. Yeah, and I also sort of half-jokingly, half-serious sort of start off by saying that, you know, back in 2009 when I started working with trees, I didn't know that oak trees produced acorns. That's how little I knew when I started. So I try and try and break down a few of the barriers that people might have in being a bit worried or nervous. I don't do things like getting people to introduce themselves to each other, partly because I kind of hate going to events where people do that. I I kind of, (laughs) if I'm going to a public thing, I like to sort of stand there at the back on my own, not talking to anyone, just looking at the trees or listening. So yeah, yeah, I suppose keeping it as accessible and open to as many people as possible, setting the expectations, going over some of the basics. There's always going to be a health and safety aspect. So Okay, so the walk I did this weekend just gone, I had to mention that where we're going to be walking, the pathways are quite icy and slippy. And I do tend to get quite a few uh, older participants. And the last thing that I want is them to Mm. sort of slip over and have a fall. Or there might be things like rabbit holes in the ground or a particular... Some of the walks I do happen during the oak processory moth season. So I have to sort of say, if you see hairy caterpillars on the tree, please don't poke them. 
<laughs> yeah, and again, I try and I suppose for me the introduction is just to make make it as open and accessible as possible. Sort of ask them, you know, don't don't feel intimidated if you don't know. Oh, sorry. This is a, this is what I always try and reinforce: is that the idea that there's no such thing as stupid questions, because guaranteed, if someone's thinking of a question that they think is a stupid question or a bad question, there's somebody else in the group who's thinking the same thing but may not be as confident in asking in front of people. And I say there's no such thing as bad or stupid questions. It's just my ability to give a good answer or not. Yes, yeah, so I suppose just with the introductions, it's just welcoming people in, managing expectations, setting the scene of what we're covering, what to expect, and just trying to make it as accessible and as open as possible. And I, I think I I think at least the way that I do the introductions is that it makes people feel a bit more at ease because I suppose I I don't see myself as the most knowledgeable of tree people. But if you're someone who doesn't know a great deal about trees, you go to an event where someone's, they're talking about the trees, they work in the tree industry, you might be a bit intimidated by their level of knowledge compared to your own. So again, it's trying to break down those those barriers. But in saying that, I think an important thing is it is also establishing your own credibility and authority to be leading that walk. So introduce yourself don't don't hold back too much on your own knowledge and your experiences so i usually talk about you know who i am what i do the areas that i work in the sort of work that i do you know people find that fascinating the amount of people that i've spoken to who had no idea that people work with trees and love the idea that there's people out there actively working with trees yeah so they're all the different Mm. things i cover in introductions so I guess, you know, keeping it open and accessible includes avoiding jargon. Absolutely. A real pet hate of mine is when I'm reading something and I have to Google every other word because I don't know what the word means. Um, <laughs> and naturally with trees and plants, botany, biology, ecology and such, there's quite a few long, complicated words. So I do my best, absolute best to avoid technical jargon terms. If there's an alternate word that you can use to explain the subject that people understand then go with that and there are times when you can't avoid it so again going back to the identification walk that i do a couple of the terms that i use are the decussate and distichus pattern of budding which is where i always get the two mixed up i haven't got my glossary in front of me but one is where successive buds emerge at right angles to each other they alternate different angles then the other one is where buds all emerge one after the other along the same axis you know I, I find it amazing because the one where they i think it's decussate i could have that completely mixed up but one where they emerge at right angles they're basically <laughs> maximizing sun exposure and i love talking about that because i find that so fascinating and you can use it a bit in identification but again it's one of those sort of cool things that plants do that people love hearing about they love learning about so i do talk about obviously that's you have to use those terminologies if i'm talking about photosynthesis and how trees grow i'll go in about as much depth as you know photosynthesis respiration things like that but you know i'm not going to start talking about the the light and dark cycles of photosynthesis and going into advanced chemistry Mm. most because i don't really fully understand (laughs) and understand it in that depth but um (laughs) 
there's no point standing there talking about really complex things that people aren't going to understand because it it creates a barrier it can put people off it can make people a bit disinterested if you've got the walk leader and two or three people in the in the group who do know those things it can make other people feel like they're either a bit a bit stupid or make them feel bad for not knowing or you can inadvertently as the walk leader end up just talking having a small conversation to two or three people who know what you're talking about and excluding everyone mm. else so yeah for me avoiding the overly technical terms and the jargon is a really important way of keeping it accessible and open for everyone um but if you do have to go into use of terminology explain at every opportunity what it is and what it means yeah. because some of the more intricate and detailed aspects of plants and trees they're so fascinating and people people find it amazing again it's just those cool things that plants do so there's there's no harm in going into more advanced technical things but it's doing it in a way that makes it open and accessible and if you do use a particularly um a long or technical term every time we do actually stop and explain what it is and why you're using that term yeah well said so are you the type of person who would leave questions to the end or is it really important to have those questions at every opportunity i like questions at any point to be honest i think a big part of that's going to be personal preference but every now and then you get someone interrupting you to ask a question which can get a bit annoying but <laughs> if you leave questions right to the end you have an influx of questions a very small time to answer them and then people might feel like then they weren't able to ask their question plus also it might be at a particular tree that the question is relevant so they want to ask then but for yeah. four or five trees down the line that question's it's lost its context and one thing that i've particularly found is i'm very very forgetful so i'll go up to a tree intending to talk about something and then i'll talk about everything else and forget that point but sometimes i've had people ask questions which i had intended to talk about but i completely forgotten so it's, it's a great kind of memory yeah. for me as well um and also if the person asking the question I, I hope this point makes sense but i talk and explain things that largely my level of understanding of the subject and people ask questions at their level of understanding of the subject so when someone asks a question wanting me to further explain a particular point or detail of a tree nine times out of ten they're asking a question that's going to benefit everybody else's learning and understanding so things like that i really really welcome and i want them to ask because it encourages me to give a more detailed explanation and then it helps everybody else one trick that i picked up is the art of walking backwards so when i'm leading the walk <laughs> i don't like to be ahead of everyone with my back to them partly because they can sort of see my balding patch at, at the back of my head but um it, it's almost like closed off whereas if i'm walking backwards looking at everyone i find it more more open uh, people find my walking backwards ability quite amusing bizarrely but again depending on the route you take and the distance between the trees you can sometimes have maybe a gap of about a minute five minutes or ten minutes well, actually not that far not ten minutes you can have a bit of a gap between each tree 
So walking between trees is actually a perfect time to pass that pass that time by asking questions. And yeah, you yeah. get people who do nothing but ask questions. You get people who ask a few annoying questions. As much as anything, I find being open to questions at any point of the walk, apart from when I'm talking about key points, it's just another way of making it more open and more enjoyable for the people. If people feel like they can ask me a question at any time rather than putting their hand up at the end, I, I found it builds that sense of openness and, and inclusivity to the walk as well. Totally. So I think having having an open approach to questions at any point, it also builds that sort of psychological concept of being a very friendly and open and accessible event as well. Yeah, but it's such a balance too because you've probably got a start time and end and end time. So you've already calculated how long you can spend at each tree. So it's sort of like, yeah, if there are too many questions and someone has something else that they need to get to that afternoon, they're going to have to leave early and it's sort of a bit of a drama, isn't it? That That is true and that, that is a very good point. I have had a few people where... <laughs> They ask too many questions, so I have had to ask them to leave it to the end. Or mm. they'll ask a question ahead of time where I'm actually going to come to that point, but at a later tree. But yeah, no, one, of the, mm. one of the key points actually with that is timing. So the majority of my walks tend to be two hours. And it's actually surprising how little you can fit into that two hours. So if people ask too many questions, uh, it can take away from time at other trees. But again, also, if, if you're having to knock back questions or say you'll answer it later, I think how you respond to that by saying, you're basically saying, I'm not answering your question now, but how you answer that I think is a very important point because you don't want to put that person off. You don't want to make them feel bad for asking the question, but then you kind of don't want everyone else to be standing Mm. around waiting while one person's just asking questions. I mean, sometimes you'll get multiple questions on the same thing or the sim- or a similar theme so you can answer several questions in one go but also I, th- I think there's no there's no harm at all in saying that's a good question i'll answer it in two trees time because that's more relevant to that that particular yeah. area of focus yeah that's a much better way of putting it so what about uh like rsvps so if you're going to tell people a time frame you're probably going to want a rough estimate of how many people you have do you do RSVPs or is it just whoever turns up on the day turns up? So the majority of the walks that I do, you have to pre-book in advance. Mm. Some are free, some are paid, but we prefer people to book on in advance just so you can have an idea of, also you can have an idea of what you're working with, how many people, some of the events you don't want too many people turning up. One of the walks that I do the people who organize it have a very haphazard approach to organizing it. They'll put something on their website, on Twitter, and they'll put a sandwich board in front of the park office saying, tree walk Saturday, 2 p.m. <laughs> and five people turn up one walk, 45 people will turn up next. Yeah, That can make it difficult to manage. In yeah. some groups, their insurance is an important part. They might not have the insurance to cover large groups. If you're dealing with resources, so on, again, winter tray identification, some of the ones that I do, we organize hand lenses. So and as well as printouts of all the terminologies and um, photo reference. And there's nothing worse really than printing off 25 copies of something or having 25 hand lenses and then a 26th person turns up and they don't get anything. 
my personal preference is I like to have I like to have a booking system in advance, but other people are more comfortable with just here's the event, turn up if you want. Again, I think it's all it's all going to be personal preference and what works best for where you're doing the walk, what the walks and the people yeah. that are organizing it. So you mentioned insurance there. That seems like a pretty important topic to touch on. Look, the laws probably are going to be different in Australia versus the UK, so specifics will probably change. But what insurance do you go for? I don't actually hold any of my own because all the walks that I do are through ah. other organisations. We tend to use their all their uh, insurances and stuff. But um, I'm pretty sure it comes, in the UK at least, it comes under public liability insurance. So again, I suppose checking what your policies are, what you're insured for, what the what the insurance won't cover. So we have had to postpone walks in the past because one of my trees and invertebrates walk, we had to postpone that because there was a thunderstorm. And, mm. you know, you kind of can't really be encouraging people to literally stand inches away from a tree during a thunderstorm where it could get no. struck by lightning. <laughs> That's not good at all <laughs> again this gets into the the health and safety side of it but um we do need to have like risk assessments done ahead of time just just to you know identify what the risks and hazards are and ways around it and like i mentioned mm. about how i i tripped over a rabbit hole once any other day of the year could have easily broken my ankle having a first aider having a first aid kit letting people know where the the toilets are where the water stops are if there are any yeah it, again it, that all comes under the pre-planning side but it is an important thing to have because I, I have had events in the past where people have had to dip out because they started to feel unwell or it got a bit too hot for them mm. and they had to had to leave because they just didn't feel well had a few parents of young children who had to go off for emergency toilet breaks and yeah just finding areas that are accessible because it's easy for me to think of things from my own perspective whereas I don't have to think about carrying a a two-year-old around with me or Mm. using a mobility aid as such. Yeah I'm not sure if you guys have them over there but we have something over here called a JSEA which is a job safety environmental analysis and I think that's probably a good idea for anyone who's going to be running one of these is to run a JSEA. Yeah, I mean, we will undoubtedly have something similar, but under a different name. It might even just be um, classed under the risk assessment. But uh, yeah, it, in terms of the, the pre-planning and public safety and such, it is a really, really important part. I mean, you will get the odd person who kind of rolls their eyes at the health and safety aspect. But for my demographic at least i tend to have coming to my my walks i do tend to have um in the politest way possible older people coming and (laughs) you know literally the last thing i want is someone slipping over in the ice or tripping over a rabbit hole or uneven ground and um injuring themselves and i've had um wheelchair users come on my walks as well um the last thing that i want with them is to have pre-planned a route that they can't access. Mm. Luckily, that hasn't happened. We've not had anyone not been able to access any part of the walks. But mm. it's some, it's the last thing I would want is someone to turn up looking forward to it and then find out for whatever reason that they can't go any further on the walk. 
Totally. Again, this is why part of the, the pre-planning aspect is is really key. So, Greg, I always like to ask guests one final question at the end of every episode. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? In terms of tree walks or in general, sorry. No, it could be about anything. It's um can be off topic, can be a plug, can be a recommend a charity. You could do anything. Oh, that seems like a perfect chance to promote my brand new website. <laughs> That's it. Um, yeah, I spent time over Christmas finally setting up my own website. It's called gregtalkstrees.com. It's just advertising my my tree walks and the work that I do. Most mostly my tree walks. Also, on a more less less uh, self promotional aspect, I'd say um, lead your own tree walks. Anyone listening, you don't have to be the expert of experts. You don't have to be the most knowledgeable person on any particular subject. You can lead a tree walk on anything, and there will be people who are interested in it because they like trees and they want to know more. I mean. When I say you can do a tree walk on anything, back around Halloween last year, I did a tree walk where I talked about trees and human sacrifice. Um, <laughs> not, because, not because I have any active interest in <laughs> human sacrifice at all. It's um, anything involving belief and culture and the way in which we do things that center around trees, I find fascinating. Uh, hence why I do a, a lot of things on folklore and mythology. But, um, but yeah, whatever your interest is in trees, you can lead a walk on it and there'll be people who are interested in it, be it invertebrates, be it invertebrates in ecology, be it, you know, awesome color. I've, I've heard of people doing pest and disease tree walks, uh, tree planting in one of the boroughs in London called Hackney. It's well known in the tree world for being right at the forefront of innovative tree planting uh, either with tree planting methods or trialing different species so their former tree officer and some other local enthusiasts have done street tree tree walks looking at trees that have been, have been planted in that in that area but yeah so if you're interested in tree walks either lead your own or find a group like a local park or an education environmental ed- education team and just Think, think of a route, think of some trees, think of some things to talk about, keep it open and accessible. And uh, yeah, just advertise it, encourage people to come along because it's really rewarding, really enjoyable. And people learn about trees, which is always a good thing. Well said, Greg. Thank you so much for a great episode, mate. Thanks, thanks. Let me back. It was good fun. Is there any reason why you couldn't start a tree walk of your own? There probably aren't enough tree walks in your town, and if you don't start doing them, who will? If you enjoyed this chat, you'll probably enjoy our previous chat in episode 113. Make sure you check out other episodes in the back catalogue, such as episode 144, Plant Immunity and Biological Defence, or episode 86, Jamming with Giants, Journey to Find the Music of the Sequoias and the Redwoods. I tend to focus on a single topic per episode, rather than just shooting the breeze with each guest. You never know what you'll find in the back catalogue if you just start scrolling.